Dear Father, once again, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather together and open up your word and study about, well, the good news, Lord, that you have given us to share with the world. We pray that we talk about the Gospel Commission this morning. Your Spirit would lead and guide in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, our subject for this morning is chapter 11. If you've been looking through your book as well, it's the Gospel Presentation is what it is. Spoke about the Great Commission yesterday. Chapter 11, the Gospel Presentation. So we're going to highlight a few principles with reference in sharing the Gospel, doing a Gospel Presentation. And there's a lot of good information in the book. I'm not going to be going through everything in the book. Hopefully you'll have a chance to read through that. That might be helpful in the little test that'll be coming. Uh, the bulk of our time this morning is going to be talking about what aspect of the Gospel do we really want to emphasize when we are visiting with someone when we're talking with them. What is it about the gospel that we really want to emphasize? We'll be looking at that as well. Okay, so the gospel presentation, good news, sharing good news with people, indicators for the gospel presentation. So you're visiting with a neighbor or a friend or you're doing a Bible study with someone and uh, they begin to ask certain questions. You want to be sensitive to these questions because this is going to tell you if, if their hearts are open for a gospel presentation. Uh, they might ask you, well, how exactly do you pray? That's a good question. It means they're open. Uh, how do you accept Jesus? Very important question. If they ask that, uh, you might even want to ask, depending upon where you are through your Bible study, do you know how to accept Jesus? You can even initiate these questions. Or do you know how to pray? Have you prayed before? Does Jesus really forgive sins? That's a question that they might ask. You know, well, they're open to it. What does it really mean to be a Christian? Well, that's another opportunity to share the gospel with them. I've done too much for God to forgive me. Have you ever heard something like that before? I'm a great sinner. I don't think God can forgive me. I used to know Jesus, but I haven't really prayed in years. So that might be someone who used to be, you know, a church member, but they've kind of drifted away. Maybe you'll come into that when you visit a former member. You're doing the reclaiming and active members. That's sometimes something you'll hear. Well, I used to pray. I used to go to church or used to know Jesus, but I haven't done so in years. Um, I want to know God, but will He really accept me? That's another question or idea that sometimes comes up. So if you're visiting with someone and these questions come up, or you prime the pump and say, um, do you know how to pray? Or do you believe Jesus forgives you for your sins? You can ask those kind of questions. Kind of see where they are. Here's the statement that we have in the book Evangelism, page 298. It says, when persons who are under conviction, you can tell whether someone's under conviction of the Holy Spirit, are not brought to make a decision at the earliest period possible, there is a danger that the conviction will gradually wear away. So as you're working with the person, they come under conviction, and they're going to be asking certain things you're going to ask. You want to work with the Holy Spirit. Evangelism is working with the Holy Spirit. So you want to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what they are saying. Find out if there is an opening, if they are interested to know more about the gospel or the good news. And you might even ask them, do you understand what the gospel is? Uh, that's a question I like to ask. Do you know what the gospel is? Let them say what they think. And then you have an opportunity to say, well, yes, that's correct. But have you ever thought about this? And then you can go through some of the other Bible verses that we have. So here is a basic list of verses that is often used for a gospel presentation. Now, what I recommend is if you're doing a Bible study with someone, I would write these verses in the back of your Bible somewhere because you never quite know when the opportunity presents itself. 
Uh, if you can't memorize all of the verses, you write them down in the back of the Bible so you know where they are. And maybe just a little phrase about each of those verses so you know what the general theme is. Now this is in your book, by the way. All of these verses are in the book, in that chapter that says uh, Gospel Presentation, chapter 11. You'll see it. It's in there. Um, so these are some of the verses that you want to direct their attention to when you're actually going through this. First of all, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, no person is exempt. What does the Bible say in Romans 3, 23? All of sin and come short of the glory of God. So we're all in the same boat. We need Jesus. That's the first point you want to emphasize. You might even say something, well, we're going to start with the bad news, and then we're going to get to the good news. The bad news is, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all in need of God's grace. We all need forgiveness. So that's, you're building common ground with them if you start in the same place. Include yourself in the gospel presentation. So you're not above them, but you recognize their concerns. And James tells us if we offend in one point, we're guilty of all. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. Somebody might say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I, you know, I keep most of the commandments, but there's a few that, well, maybe that's not that important. Well, when we show them that, according to the Bible, all of the Ten Commandments uh, need to be kept, and if we offend or break just one, we're guilty of breaking all of them. That's why Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. So we're all in the same boat here. We need God's grace. What's the results of death? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So we've sinned. What is sin? The transgression of the law. We've broken the law. What's the result of sin? It's death. So you're painting the picture. You're giving them the bad news first, right? We've broken the law. We've sinned. The wages of sin is death. So you're working them through a process. But God calls out to us. So we've broken the law. We've sinned, the wages of sin is death, but God has not left us. And of course, this is where you can also include John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So God is the one who takes the first step. He initiates this connection with us once again. Even though we've sinned, even though we are deserving of death, God loves us and He has a plan to redeem us. So you want to emphasize that in Isaiah 59. That's verse 2, 20, and 21. Those are some of the key verses that you can look at. And then he has showed powerful evidences of his love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, While we were yet sinners, what's the rest of the verse? Christ died for us. So he didn't wait for us to make ourselves good. He provided a sacrifice that would make us good. So we should, first of all, show them that we're all sinners because we've broken the law. The wages of sin is death. And then we're all deserving to die, but God did not abandon us or leave us. He provided a way of escape. He provided a sacrifice, not because we're trying to make ourselves good, but because He's good, and He provided the sacrifice first. And He comes to us wanting to save us. So this is God initiating salvation. These are the principles that you want to emphasize. Now, you might want to read the verse, get the principle, and then maybe expand upon it and make sure the person understands the principle. If they don't understand the principle that we're all sin and come short of the glory of God, and that sin is the transgression of the law, and that the wages of sin is death, well, then you can't really get on with the rest. You have to help them understand the bad news first, that we're in trouble and we need Jesus. People won't recognize their need of Jesus until they see their true condition. So that's what these first three are doing. It's revealing to us our true condition. And then it's telling us about the solution. The solution is found in Jesus. 
Why does Jesus save us? Because we try to be good? No, it's because He's good and He loves us. What motivates God is His compassion for us. We want to emphasize that because there's a lot of people that think, well, He's naturally a good person. And that's why, you know, He has grace or He's a Christian because He's naturally inclined to those kind of things. We help people realize that, no, we're all sinners, and it's not because any of us have a certain inclination towards God, it's because God has an inclination towards us that He saves us. So God is reaching out to us. What you're trying to do in this gospel presentation is help them realize that there is no sin that God can't forgive, that God can forgive all sin, and that He has the power to give us victory over sin. And that's the part that we're really going to emphasize a little later on in the presentation today, but I think that in particular is good news for where people are. Uh, then you want to also emphasize that the only way to obtain forgiveness, to come to God, is through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So first of all, we realize we're a sinner, we're on, under conviction because the wages of sin is death, yet we see God reaching out to us because He loves us. Now what are we to do? Well, now we want to step towards God. How do we step towards God? Through Jesus. So we need to recognize that Jesus is the way to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So we come to Jesus in prayer. We accept Jesus' sacrifice for us. We ask Jesus to be our personal Savior. That's what's being emphasized here in this point. Then the next one is we can be part of the solution. So if we make a step towards God, God will move towards us. Not that He hasn't moved to us yet, but He's waiting for our response. He's waiting for us to do something. And while you're presenting the gospel presentation, you are trying to build up their faith. Because the devil is going to try and discourage them and think, well, God's not going to hear my prayer. God doesn't answer prayer. I've gone too far. I'm too much of a sinner. So while you're doing this, you're using your own experience and you're saying, you know, there was a time where I was wondering if God was going to hear my prayer. But then I read in Scripture that He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess, if we come to Him in prayer. So you're building up their faith. Don't put yourself on one side and them on the other, and you're kind of just addressing them like a teacher, and you're telling them everything that they need to do. You're sort of standing alongside them, and you're guiding them. You're including yourself in their experience. So they have a friend. They have somebody that's concerned about them, someone that's leading them versus just teaching them. That's an important principle to keep in mind. Then, of course, you want to encourage them that we can have freedom in Jesus. We're going to talk about this here in quite a bit in just a few moments. Freedom in Jesus not only includes forgiveness, but it also includes power. We are justified and we are sanctified by faith. And then we have an invitation to receive His gift. Finally, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in unto him and I will dine with him and he with me. I like to go to that verse and paint a little picture. Jesus is standing outside the door of your heart and he's knocking. He won't force his way in. Your freedom of choice, your will, is what opens the door. And you can open the door right now. You can choose Jesus right now. You don't have to leave him standing outside. And if you open the door, Jesus says he will come in and he will eat with you. And sometimes they think, what does that mean? Well, then I explained to them that in the Bible, bread often is a symbol of the Word of God. And the way that we grow spiritually is through God's Word. We receive Jesus through the will, choosing. He opens, we open the door and He comes in. But when He comes in, He wants to lead us into a deeper understanding of His Word. 
That's what it means when Jesus says, I will eat with him, I'll dine with him. I'll help you understand the word. Because it's in the word that we come to know Jesus. So I emphasize that part, part as well in the gospel presentation. And then we have a promise for growth. 2 Corinthians tells us that anyone in Christ is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we encourage them that there is hope in Jesus. Jesus can change who we are. Now it's also very important, and we're going to get to this near the end too, is that when you do this gospel presentation, you want to be realistic. You don't want to set the person up for failure. I've seen experiences where someone will receive Jesus as their personal savior, but the gospel presentation was not given correctly to the person. So at first they have joy and they have forgiveness and they're grateful, but then a few days go by and they wake up in the morning and they don't have a great day. And that temptation comes just as strong before. And they think, well, maybe Jesus didn't hear my prayer two days ago. Or maybe I'm not really forgiven. And they don't know what to do when they see that carnal nature still alive within them and they begin to doubt whether God actually forgave them or heard their prayer. So you need to anticipate what the devil is going to try to do to discourage the people you're working with. So you want them to understand how this all works, right? That just because we receive Jesus as our personal Savior doesn't mean the, the carnal nature suddenly disappears. What that does mean is now we have a spiritual nature and a carnal nature. And we need to be feeding that spiritual nature and we need to be starving the carnal nature and give people practical ways as to how they can do that. And we'll look at that a little later on in the presentation. So here are some principles then in the gospel presentation. I want to go through it one more time. First of all, what is the first thing you want to do? Help the person understand that we're all in the same boat, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You want to define for them what sin is. What is sin? The transgression of God's law. And if you break one of the commandments, you've broken them all. And what's the wages of sin? Yeah. Death. So we're in big trouble, right? We're all in the same boat. We've broken God's law. We're guilty of sin. We're heading for death. But God loves us. And He doesn't want to see us die eternally. So He has provided a plan of redemption, a way of escape. And God does this not because we're good, but because He's good. And He loves us. So He reaches down to us, right? And that's what this is talking about. God calls us to Himself. Okay? He has shown His powerful evidence of His love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have to make ourselves good to come to Jesus. We can come to Jesus just the way that we are. He will accept us. Then you want to emphasize the way to have this forgiveness. It's only through Jesus. Jesus is not only the one who provides forgiveness, but He's also the one that lives in us and with us day by day. So it's not just Jesus at the beginning of a person's Christian experience. It's Jesus every single step. And you need to emphasize Jesus. Emphasize the cross. Emphasize His experience to live with you. Very, very important. And then recognize that there is a solution. God has provided it through Jesus. We can experience freedom from sin. We can experience freedom from sins we have committed in the past, but we can also receive freedom from those temptations that come our way. We'll explain to them how they can get victory through Jesus. And then we have an invitation to receive His gift. And you just quote Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, and say, Jesus is knocking at the heart of your door right now. And that's where you can become a little serious. He longs to come here. He wants to give you peace. He wants to give you joy. But it's up to you. It's your will that will open the door. It's your choice. 
Jesus wants you to open the door. What do you want to do today? Encourage him to make that decision. Say, yes, yes, I want Jesus to come in. And he said, well, praise the Lord. We're going to ask him to, have, to come in in a very special way in just a moment. And that's where you have a prayer. And then tell him, you need to grow. If you want to be a new creature, you need to be in the Word. And you explain that a little bit. So once you've gone through these steps, and they are clear in these basic parts, and I want to do it one more time, and you need to help me. I want to make sure you get it, all right? So we start by describing the problem. What's the problem? Sin. Sin's the problem. Where, where does sin come from? What is sin? Transgression of the law. How many people have broken the law? All. So are we all in trouble? What's the wages of sin? Death. So we all condemned to death. So we're in a bad situation. But how does God feel about us? God loves us. And so His plan of salvation, He has a plan of redemption. Not because we're good, but because He's good. He has compassion upon us. And God can save to the uttermost. Those who come to Him through Jesus. You need to have faith, but you come to God through Jesus. So that brings you to the next point. The only way to salvation is Jesus and what He did for us. So you talk about the cross there briefly. Then after they realize, wow, Jesus is the only way, then you go on to, we can be part of the solution. In other words, God has a plan. He wants to change us. He wants to forgive us. He also wants to set us free. And after you paint that picture, then you do the appeal. And the appeal is, Jesus is standing knocking at your heart's door. He wants to come in. And when He comes in, there is peace, there is joy, there is hope, there is forgiveness. Everything you need, you receive when Jesus comes in. But the problem is the door is closed. And Jesus won't open the door. That's your door. You have to open it. How do you open the door? Through your choice through your will. And I explain to them what that is. Because sometimes they feel like, oh, I'm such a big sinner, I just don't feel like I can do what God wants me to do. Well, don't, don't worry about that. Start by choosing Jesus. Everything depends upon the right action of the will. You cannot of yourself change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose Him. He will then work within you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. All right? So everything depends upon the choice about making that decision. So once they understand what that is, to open the door, I need to choose Jesus, then you invite them to do so. Well, let's choose Jesus right now. Would you like to choose Jesus? Yes, I'd like to choose Jesus. Then you lead them in a prayer. And the prayer is very simple. It's just, Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. You go through the same ideas in the prayer. I recognize I have broken your law and that the wages of sin is death. But Father, I also recognize that you love me and you gave Jesus and Jesus has provided a way of escape. So I come to you in the name of Jesus. I know you are knocking at my heart's door. Please, Lord, come inside. I choose you today. Thank you for your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you might have to lead them in that prayer because they might never have prayed that kind of prayer before, right? But those are the steps you want in your gospel presentation. Okay, what's the first thing you want to do? You're going to say, oh man, how many times do we go through this? One more time, all right? Because this, this is where it all... You can teach them all the doctrines in the world, but if they don't get this, what good is it going to do? Are you with me? This is the heart of evangelism, right here, the gospel presentation. So what's the first thing you need to describe or show them? The problem, right? The problem. 
And the problem is? Sin. sin. And what is sin? Transgression of the law. And what's the wages of sin? Death. Death. So we describe that. And you look at a few verses, make sure they understand that. So we have a problem. It's not just them, all of us. whole world has the problem. We're all in the same boat. But now what is God doing? Well, God's looking down at love. And He's provided a way of escape. And that way of escape is through Jesus. Not because we're good, but because He's good. And because He loves us, He sent us His Son. Jesus provided a sacrifice so that we can be forgiven. But in order for us to get to God, we have to go through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He's given us an invitation. The Bible says He stands at the door and knock. And out of all of the verses, uh, Revelation chapter 3.20 is one that I usually almost always quote or have them go to that verse near the end of the gospel presentation because it makes it so clear. It's visual. People can understand that. Jesus is knocking at the heart's door. He wants to come in. But in order for Jesus to come in, we have to open the door. What is the door? Well, the, the, the door is to the heart, but... How do we open the door? Through the will, through the power of the mind, the will. We choose. It's not through our feelings. You might not feel different when you open up the heart's door, at least at first. doesn't mean you didn't open up the heart and that Jesus didn't come in. Encourage them. We walk by faith, not by feeling. So if you choose, if you ask, He will come in. And then you lead them through that little prayer. Does that make sense to everybody? Can we all do that? I think so. It's not that complicated. All right. So in our Bible study, and you know what? I do this several times in a Bible study. By the time the person's done, they've got this gospel presentation idea down in their mind. Because almost every time after we do the first one, every Bible study, I begin with a quick summary of the gospel. And I go through the same thing. And eventually they know it, just like you do. So what's the problem? Sin's the problem. Where did sin come from? It's breaking God's law. Oh, what's the wages? It's death. Well, does God love us? Yes. Has God provided a way of escape? Yes. What's the way of escape? It's Jesus through His sacrifice. And Jesus is standing knocking at the heart's door. What do we have to do? We have to open the heart's door. I ask them, how do we open the heart's door? Through choice. I say, how often do we have to open the heart's door? I say, every day. The Apostle Paul says, I die daily, right? So it's a day-by-day experience. So by the time that person is done with Bible studies with you, they need to know what they have to do to be saved. It's to be very clear in their mind. It's a day-by-day experience. Now, there's an aspect of the gospel or the good news that we want to emphasize. Now, this is not all in your book. The steps and the practical side of it is in your book. This is a little more, more of the theory that you want to keep in your mind as you give a Bible study, as you do the gospel presentation. Uh, and you just some general principles here. So there's an aspect of the gospel we want to emphasize. And it starts in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Remember we said everything goes through Jesus, through His sacrifice, through His gift. This is the angel announcing the birth of Jesus. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, in the English, the words good tidings come from a single Greek word that is elsewhere translated as gospel. So, in other words, we can read the verse, Fear not, for behold, I bring you the gospel of good news. So, here we have one verse summarizing for us what the gospel is. Now, of course, the gospel can be expanded upon, but here is one verse 
from an angel explaining the gospel, all right? It centers in Jesus and what Jesus has done. So let's take a closer look at this verse. Three important things in the gospel. First of all, the gospel brings joy. The angel said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Why does the gospel bring joy? Well, we just looked at sin is the transgression of the law. We're all guilty of breaking God's law, and the wage of the sin is death. That's bad news. But the solution is in Jesus. So Jesus brings joy. And when you find hope and life, there's joy. So the gospel brings joy. And when we present the gospel to our neighbor, our friend, the Bible study contact, Let's present this with joy. So you can paint a pretty dark picture when you talk about sin and the problem, but when you start talking about the solution, you better start smiling, all right? Get excited because this is good news. This should bring joy. There's hope. God has a plan for us. Secondly, the gospel is for everyone, and you want to emphasize this. Sometimes people think, well, I'm too much of a sinner. Well, there's no way God can really forgive me. You say, no, 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 no. The gospel is for everyone. And what is the gospel all about? It is a message of salvation. The angel said unto you, is born a Savior. And then when the angel was speaking to Joseph, speaking of Mary, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the gospel saves people from sin. The gospel brings joy. The gospel is for everyone. And the gospel is a message of salvation. Jesus saving people from their sins. Now, how does the gospel save people from sin? We want to be clear on this in our minds. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17, one of my favorite verses, it says, Paul speaking, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, what is the it? The gospel of Christ. For it is, now he defines it, the what? The power of God. So notice that the gospel is connected with power. The gospel is connected with power. For it is the power of God, how's the power to be used? For salvation, or to salvation, for everyone that believes, to the Jew first, also for the Greek. For in it, what's the it? The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now we need to unpack this verse just a little bit more. We understand a little bit about the gospel, and the gospel is good news. But here point, Paul is even more specific, and he says, it is the good news concerning who? Jesus. Jesus. So it's the good news about Jesus, the good news about Christ. Christ is the Greek for Messiah, which is the Hebrew. So Messiah is the Hebrew, Christ is the Greek, means the anointed one. So it's the good news about the anointed one, the good news about the one sent from heaven. That's what it's about. Now, if I were to ask you to open your Bibles to one of the Gospels, where would you go? You go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And what do we read about in the Gospels? Read about the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. We read about the teachings of Jesus. We read about the death of Jesus. We read about the resurrection of Jesus. So the gospel is all about Jesus, his life, his birth, his life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, and now his high priestly ministry. That's all about Jesus. It's about who he is, what he has done. 
Now, Paul narrows down what is it about Christ that we emphasize. He says, the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So there is something about the life of Jesus that Paul says is powerful that brings salvation. What is it about the life of Jesus that is so powerful that it brings salvation? Well, it explains it further for us near the end of the verse. For in it, what's the it? The gospel. The gospel. And what's the gospel? The life of Christ. For in it, the life of Jesus, the what? The righteousness of God is revealed. So what did Jesus reveal from his birth to his substitutionary death to his resurrection? What did Jesus reveal? The righteousness of God. Now, why is this so important to Paul? Why does he emphasize this? Well, what was Paul's background before he was converted? Well, he was a Jew, but not just any Jew. He was a Pharisee. And what did the Pharisees put their confidence in with reference to salvation? The law, but what about them and the law? They put their confidence in their own righteousness. They felt like they could keep the law. And at least if they did the best they could, that would be good enough. They understood that you couldn't be perfect. And they said, well, God doesn't really expect perfect perfectness. But if you just try really hard and do the best you can, well, that's going to give you the best chance in the judgment. All right? So their righteousness was based upon their own works. And was Paul trying to obtain righteousness based upon his own works before his conversion? Yes. You can read the story of what Paul was doing before he was converted. But when Paul met Jesus, he suddenly realized there is a righteousness that is far better than any righteousness I can obtain for myself. Then he realized it's that righteousness that saves me not my righteousness that saves me. And that was revolutionary in the thinking of Paul. It was revolutionary in the thinking of the Jews. That there is a righteousness that is perfect that takes my place. So when we're talking about the righteousness of God revealed in Christ, why is it that our righteousness is not good enough to save us? Well, what happens if I go through the little gospel presentation and I receive Jesus as my personal Savior? And I have the Holy Spirit come in my heart and life. And I live a perfect life from now till my death. Is that righteousness good enough? Well, yeah, but what happens if the Holy Spirit works a miracle within me and I actually live a perfect life like the 144,000 will live after probation closes? You see, the only kind of righteousness that counts for everlasting life is a perfect righteousness from birth till translation. There is only one being on earth that has lived a perfect righteousness from birth until his substitutionary death, and that is Jesus. So even if I have the Holy Spirit's help, and from now on I live a perfect life of righteousness, there's a problem. Not that I probably will ever live a perfect life of righteousness before probation closes, but the problem is we have a history. We have a history. So all of us are already disqualified from trying to earn our way into heaven. 
Because we all have a history of sin. At some point, right? We've all sinned. All fallen short of the glory of God. So our only hope of salvation is a righteousness outside of ourselves. An imputed righteousness. Paul's getting all excited and he says, hey friends, this is good news. There is a righteousness that's available outside of ourselves. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And then he goes on elsewhere to say, oh, oh by the way, that righteousness of Jesus has already been accepted by God. Amen. It's got his seal of approval that that righteousness is able to save. Thus Paul gets all excited about Jesus. And that's why he goes preaching everywhere and anywhere that there is a righteousness that says it's the righteousness of Jesus. Now, how do we obtain that imputed righteousness of Jesus? Through justification. And how are we to be justified? Through the gospel presentation. Simply opening the heart's door by faith. And the moment we do that, we do that every day, we are justified. His righteousness takes the place of my unrighteousness. And I stand before God just as if I have never sinned. Now that's wonderful. And that's a tremendous truth. And that brings assurance to me that if I keep opening my heart's door, I am saved, I'm secure. But we live in a world with sin. And we don't always want to be falling, right? We want to have victory in our lives. And that's where sanctification comes in. That is the imparted righteousness of Jesus. And it's the imparted righteousness of Jesus that transforms us into a new creation. Now, I want us to be very clear with reference to the motivation for sanctification. If our purpose to be sanctified is so that we can obtain a degree of righteousness that God can accept so we can be saved, we have the wrong motivation. If we're trying to do the right thing in order for us to be saved, what's the motivation? Selfishness. Was there any selfishness in the righteousness of Jesus? All of Christ's righteousness was motivated by love. The only kind of righteousness that God can accept is a righteousness motivated by love. So when we come to Jesus and we open the heart's door and we understand the forgiveness that God gives us, we will then want to do those things that please Him, not in order to try and save ourselves, but because we want to glorify Him. We want to thank Him. We want to demonstrate before the whole universe that God can save. It must be motivated by love. Does that make sense with everybody? Yeah. Sometimes in our minds, even though we've been Adventists for years, we fall into the trap of thinking that somehow I have to do the right thing because I'm trying to be saved, but the motivation is selfishness, which disqualifies any kind of righteousness. The right motivation to do the right thing needs to be love and appreciation for God. Amen. That kind of motivation God can accept. That's the righteousness that God says, yes, that's what I want. So it's important that we help people understand this when we're giving them a Bible study. Because the natural tendency is, if I can just stop smoking, then I will have a righteousness that God can approve. And it becomes self-centered salvation. 
Salvation is never self-centered, it's Christ-centered. He becomes the motivation. Jesus does the first work. We respond to what He has done. Sanctification is a response to justification. If we don't understand justification, if we haven't received justification, we will never be able to experience sanctification because our motives are wrong. Does that make sense with everybody? Amen. Justification comes first. No wonder Paul says that's good news. So as a Christian, we are not walking around under this cloud of condemnation, always afraid that we're going to do the wrong thing, thinking that somehow we saved one minute, and then we sin, and then we lost, and then we ask forgiveness, then we saved, and then we do the wrong thing, and then we lost, and it's kind of a yo-yo Christian experience. That's not the kind of Christian experience we want to have. We want to have confidence in what Jesus has already done for us, and we want to respond to what He has done by saying, Lord, work within me to glorify Your name, to reveal Your character, to show forth my love to You. That's the motivation for righteousness. Okay, any questions on that? Does it make sense? Okay, please don't ignore that in your gospel presentation, because you don't want to set somebody up for failure. You don't want them to think somehow that it's their righteousness that saves them. I'm not... I'm not saying sanctification is not important. Sanctification is crucial because sanctification reveals whether or not somebody has truly received justification. So if we don't have a desire to do what's right, then we need to question, have I really received God's forgiveness to begin with? Have I really opened my heart's door to Him? Or is He still standing outside? If Jesus comes in, there will be a desire to serve Him, to please Him, to love Him. That's the correct motivation Amen. for doing anything good has to be motivated by love. Okay, talking a little bit about power. Now, how does the gospel save people from their sins? Everybody wants power today. Some seek it by means of wealth, others through politics, others through learning, and still others through the indulgence of selfish pleasure. But whatever the means, the object is the same. Some kind of power. And everybody on the earth is under some kind of power. Either they're under the power of Satan, which leads to sin, or they're under the power of God that leads to righteousness. But everybody wants power. We feel a need for power. Even if you were to look to our secular culture today, there is much emphasis on power. Some of the most popular movies being produced are movies of people that have extraordinary powers. People like the idea of having power, having dominance. People want to have dominance. They want to have power. Now, that's not all a bad thing. Did God originally designed that mankind have dominance in the earth? Yeah. Yes. Dominance over nature in a positive way, a nurturing way, but does God want us to have dominance over the carnal nature? Does God want us to have dominance over the carnal nature? Yes. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. So a desire to have power, I mean, just stop and think about it, even in a practical way. How many times do we make a New Year's resolution to get up early in the morning and go exercise or whatever the case might be and we just fail at it and we think, oh man, I wish I had more motivation, I wish I had more power, right? People realize this, they want to be able to finish what they decide to do. But you've got the carnal nature that sometimes drags you down. And God wants us to have victory, He wants us to have power. So everybody wants power of some kind. Notice the statement in the book Amazing Grace. It says, our condition through sin is unnatural. The power that restores us, therefore, must be supernatural. 
Where does that power come from? Else it has no value. There is but one power that can break the hold of evil from the hearts of men. That power is God. It's the power of God that gives us dominance over the carnal nature. All right? So in your Bible study, in your gospel presentation, not only help them understand that Jesus, when He comes into our hearts and lives, He gives us peace and joy and forgiveness, but He also wants to give us power. He wants to give us deliverance over the flesh, over the carnal nature. This is exciting. Yeah, amen. This is exciting for someone who is experiencing the consequences of being dominated by the flesh. It's not a happy place to be where you're under the control of sin. Now, there's some people that might like to be under the control of sin, but sooner or later people realize the devil is a terrible master. And they struggle to escape, but they realize, I don't have the power to escape. And you come with a gospel presentation, you sharing with them good news, saying, hey, there is a way that you can escape. There is a power that God wants to give you. It's a special supernatural power that He wants to put within your heart and life. Now, what is the nature of the saving power? I'm talking about this power that God wants to give us. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7. That famous verse, especially for us as Adventists. Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel. What does the angel represent in Revelation 14? A messenger that has a message, right? Flying in the midst of heaven. Why is he flying in the midst of heaven? So everybody can see him. And everybody can hear him. It's a message that has to go everywhere. And what does this message contain? The everlasting gospel. What's the gospel? Good news. Good news about what? The life of Christ. And what does the life of Christ reveal? The righteousness of God. And what is it that we need so desperately? Righteousness. So the everlasting gospel reveals to us that there is a righteousness that saves. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And we can receive His righteousness by opening the heart's door and having Jesus come in. You don't always think of the three angels' messages in those ways, but this is where it all begins. If we don't understand what this everlasting gospel is, how can we bring good news? I mean, what's the good news about Babylon that's fallen is fallen? Not a whole lot of good news there, other than a warning. Where's the good news that if anyone worships the beast or his image or receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the saints will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation? He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Doesn't sound a whole lot of good news, right? No. So if you don't understand the everlasting gospel, you're going to try and avoid the mark of the beast based on fear or based on selfishness. And how successful will that be? Won't be very successful, right? So sometimes in our evangelistic presentations, we motivate people based on fear instead of based upon the gospel, the good news, the love of Christ. So must keep this in balance. Otherwise, you're setting people up to join the church and you're making them Pharisees, trying to do all the right things because they're trying to save themselves instead of responding to what Jesus has done for them. Oh, that changes everything, right? There is a peace, there is a joy, there is a motivation that comes from receiving His righteousness and His grace. Okay, but then it goes on. The everlasting gospel to preach to everyone that dwells upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with what kind of a voice? Loud voice. Not a soft voice, a loud voice. Fear God. Does that sound good news? It is. If you explain to them what fear is. Reverence God. 
how do we reverence God? Well, the verse tells us how we reverence God, by worshipping Him. That's how we fear God, worship Him. The first angel's message defines true worship. The third angel's message defines false worship. And the second angel warns us about false doctrine. Okay, Babylon, false doctrine, don't worship the beast, false worship, worship the Creator, true worship. So the three angels' messages deals with worship. First angel is true worship, third angel is false worship, the middle angel has to do with false doctrine or false teaching. And let me just be sidetracked here for just a moment if you don't mind. There's something else I want to say about the three angels' messages. What kind of a voice does the first angel have? Loud. Got a loud voice. Fear God, give him glory, the hour of his judgment has come. What kind of a, skip over the second angel, what kind of a voice does the third angel have? And the third angel followed saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast or his image or receives his mark. So the first angel has what kind of a voice? Loud. The third angel has what kind of a voice? Loud. <laughs> what kind of a voice does the second angel have? Have you ever noticed that before? The first angel has a loud voice. The third angel has a loud voice, but the second angel goes, <clears throat> Babylon is fallen, is fallen. <laughs> Where's the loud voice? Why are you jumping ahead of me? I thought maybe that's what you're going to say. If you look at the three angels' messages, sure enough, the first angel has a loud voice, the third angel has a loud voice, but the second angel just announces, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And one day I was studying this and I began wondering, well, what's the deal here? Why doesn't the second angel have a loud voice? Well, if you think of the three angels' messages, not only do they represent our message as a whole that has to go to the world, but the three angels' messages also represent three phases of the Advent movement. When was the message first proclaimed? Fear God, give Him glory, the hour of His judgment has come. Worship the Creator. 1844 and shortly thereafter, right? Yeah, it started earlier, but not in its fullness. They didn't understand anything about what it is to worship the Creator. They didn't understand the Sabbath until sometime later. But the first angel's message has often been described as leading right up to the great disappointment in 1844. It started sometime earlier and then sort of culminated with the judgment hour message, and even after that, when they understood the truth of the high priestly ministry of Jesus, what the hour of His judgment was, so even a few years after that, they were still proclaiming it very, very loudly, right? The second angel then would represent a time period after the proclamation of the first angel, where truth was established, especially as described in the first angel's message, and it was evident that Babylon was fallen, but what happens after 1840? Well, let me put it this way. Which church follows the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3? Church of Laodicea. Which was the church of the first angel's message? Philadelphia or Laodicea? Philadelphia. So it was proclaimed with a loud voice. But sometime after that, we entered into the church of lukewarmness, where the church said, I am rich, increased with goods, I have need of nothing. And Jesus said, you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel of thee, buy of me gold we find in the fire. What's gold? Faith and love, white raiment, Christ's righteousness, I salve, spiritual discernment of the Holy Spirit that you might be rich. So we move from the Philadelphia church of the first angel 
into the Laodicean church of the second angel. And the message is Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But because the church is Laodicean, it's not proclaiming it very loudly. But when you come to the third angel's message, what does the third angel message say? If anyone worships the beast or his image or receives his mark. Does anyone have the mark of the beast today? So even though we preach the third angel's message, does it have a special future application? Absolutely. And I believe based upon the three angels' messages, when we begin to see certain things take place, setting up for the mark of the beast, then I believe the church will respond with a loud voice finally and say, don't worship the beast, don't worship his image, don't receive his mark, based upon the third angel's message. So that's why the third angel has a loud voice, because it's yet in the future. So if the first angel has a historical application and the third angel has a future application, where do you think that puts us today? And the message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is not a popular message today. Especially when you have this worldwide ecumenical movement where all the churches are trying to come together and the Adventist church is trying to fit in with the other Protestant denominations to have one group saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. It's not a popular message. So yes, we believe it. We know it's true. But let's not make a big deal about it. Let's not preach loudly that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. You understand why the second angel doesn't have a loud voice? One other quick thing. How many times does Babylon fall? Babylon is? Fallen is? So why does it say twice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen? You got the answer? Uh, in Revelation chapter 17, there is a woman and her name is Babylon and she's sitting upon a scarlet colored beast. And on her forehead, the name is written, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. So she's the mother church, and she has daughter churches. Who does the mother church represent? Rome. Who do the daughter churches represent? Apostate Protestantism. Now in the Bible, we have certain probationary time periods that God has given to different groups. He gave the Jews 490 years of probationary time which ended in 34 A.D. at the stoning of Stephen. At that point, Israel fell. Their probation was closed, and all that God could do was call out a remnant. Don't miss this. It's an important point. He called out a remnant, spiritually Israel. I don't even go back even further. Before the flood, there was 120 years of probationary time that God gave to the antediluvian world. At the end of that 120 probationary time, there's nothing more God could do for them. Judgment was coming, but God called out a remnant, Noah and his family. Are you with me? Yes. 400 years, the Israelites were captives in Egypt. At the end of that 430 probationary time period, God called out a remnant. Israel came out of Egypt, and judgment came upon Egypt. You see the pattern that's established? We have the 1260 years, 538 till 1798. During that time period, God was trying to, through the different reformers, was trying to reach the mother church, trying to bring her to a point of um, conviction and conversion. But in 1798, her probationary time ended. 
Babylon fell the first time. And all God could do was call out a remnant, the Protestant churches. Are you with me? But then from the mid-1800s, even a little before that, God was still working through the Protestant denominations. And if you read some of the material that was out there in the late 1700s, early 1800s, all the way up to the mid-1800s of Protestant pastors and authors, you will be amazed at the depth of their spirituality and their call for righteousness. One of my favorite authors I like to read is someone by the name of Andrew Murray. He lived in the 1800s. He's got some powerful things on um, surrender of self, prayer, practical, good stuff. You read him, you think, man, maybe he was reading Ellen White. He was a contemporary of Ellen White. Just some good material, and you can clearly see how God was working through the Protestant churches. But a special message came to the Protestant churches, first and foremost, 1843-1844. That was a very important message. When the Protestant churches as a whole rejected the message, Babylon fell the second time. And all that God could do was call out a remnant. And that's why we are here today. Are you with me? So the first fall is the mother church. The second fall is the daughter churches. Now there are people out there that are saying that the Seventh-day Adventist church has fallen and the Seventh-day Adventist church is Babylon. But what I have to say to them is how many times does Babylon fall? Just twice. The mother church and the daughter church, there isn't a third fall. Now it's true, the church has to be purified, there's going to be a shaking, we need the latter rain, there's going to have to be a revival in the church, but this church is going to go through by God's grace. Amen? So we don't have to have a remnant of the remnant coming out. And I don't know about here, but we have that on the West Coast where there are some very concerned brethren, and I share a lot of their concerns. They see things happening in the church and they're getting very nervous and they're beginning to pull out from the church and trying to establish their own little groups, their remnant of the remnant. And I'm saying, don't jump ship. The ship is going to go through the storm. It's going to be shaken. It's going to be purified, but it's going to go through. Because based on prophecy, there's only two falls, and both of them have already occurred. Does that make sense to everybody? That was a distraction. Anyway, I wasn't going to talk about that, but I wanted to mention the second angel. Back to this point, all right? The gospel is connected, though, with worshiping the Creator. Fear God, give Him glory. The hour of His judgment has come. We spoke about that, the measuring yesterday. All right? Has come and worship Him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Now, of course, the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea is the Creator. The Creator is Christ. The everlasting gospel is connected to Christ as the Creator. That's an important point. You'll see why that is. What is this saving power? The preaching of the gospel involves presenting God as the Creator and calling men to worship Him as such. Therefore, the power of the gospel is nothing less than the creative power of God. Why is this important? Because part of creation is to be a new creation. And only the Creator can make a new creation. And you need to tell, your Bible study contacts this. Because it's pretty discouraging when you try to do the right thing and you realize you don't have the power to do the right thing and you get discouraged and or just about ready to give up. You say, don't give up! Because the Creator is also the Savior. He has creative power to work in your heart and life, to change you, make you a new creature. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So in the world around us, we can see a demonstration of God's creative power because He made all things. So the power of God is seen in creation. Therefore, the power of God is His creative power. And since the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it follows then that the gospel is the manifestation of the creative power of God for the saving of mankind. Does that make sense? Why could an angel not save us? Could an angel come to the earth and live a perfect life? How do you know? Angels are pretty powerful beings. Yeah, an angel might have been able to come live a life of perfection on the earth. But in order for salvation, there has to be creation, a recreation. Can an angel create? No. So there was only one being in the universe that could save us, and he had to be the creator. And that's why I think John emphasizes the role that Jesus played as the active agent in creation. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word, the Savior, is also the Creator. And that's the link that Paul is trying to make. That's the link that John is trying to make. That's why Jesus is worthy of worship, because He created us and He has redeemed us and saved us. That's why God the Father is worthy of worship, because He has made us, according to Revelation. He has redeemed us. So the Creator and the Savior are connected in the Gospel. And that's rather important, because not only do we need forgiveness through the Savior, we need power through the Creator. Right? Justification, sanctification. We need both. People want both. They want hope. They want a change in their life. Now, how powerful is God's creative power? Pretty powerful. Uh, God made everything, right? And God made the sun. And the sun has a lot of power, doesn't it? It's always shining up there. It's been shining for 6,000 years now, and it'll probably shine for quite a while to come. But how much power is contained in the sun? Well, they tell us, I don't know who figures these things out, but somebody says, in one second, there are about 400 trillion trillion watts of power that is emitted from the sun. That is a lot of energy. The sun produces all of that energy in one second. Now, of course, we don't get 400 trillion trillion watts of power every second hitting the earth because, you know, this is going everywhere and we're just down there, so we get a little bit of it. But if we could somehow harness all the energy that comes from the sun in one second, they tell us that's enough energy to power everything electric on earth for 500,000 years. That's the energy, the power, one second that comes from the sun. Now, where did all that power come from? Where did all that energy come from? Can energy create itself? No. It has to have a source. So God's the one that put all this power in the sun. Jesus made the sun shine. That energy had to come from somewhere. It came from God. And they tell us that our sun is the size of a golf ball in comparison to the earth when you compare our sun with some of the other stars that they've seen out there in the universe. Well, those stars also need to have power. They also have energy. 
Where did their energy come from? Came from God. All things come from God. And after God created the universe with His creative power, was God running low on creative energy? No. <laughs> God has no end to His power. Now the point that Paul is trying to make, and it's quite an incredible thought if you think about it, Paul is saying the same power that was manifest in the creation of all things, that same power is available for God to recreate us into His image. If God can make the sun shine, can God give us victory over sin? Absolutely. If God could make the universe, can He help us to control our temper? Absolutely. For there's nothing impossible with God. So in your gospel presentation, remind people about the power that we're talking about. This is God's creative power that has been used for our salvation. Now, what must we do in order to tap this creative power of God? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.